UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty turns, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. You can't see me right now, but I'm here. I'm I'm with uh, Glenn Steckling. Um, him and his father have been uh, proponents for the Adamski case and the evidence that George Adamski brought forth. Now, why this is controversial is because if you're in the UFO community and you're familiar with this case, just like the Billy Meyer case, it it gets some heat. Like, but Glenn's here today to prove the 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 the. The, the real research that him and his father have that they've been studying for years. And he's a really esteemed guest. I'm really honored to have him. And just to read you his bio, Glenn Steckling has assumed the responsibilities of his family's work in the field of UFO and ET research since his father, Mr. Fred Steckling, passed away in 1991. This knowledge represents years of personal experiences and collective data. Now armed with his firsthand sightings, he continues to present the materials discovered and bequeathed in his family spanning over 60 years. Mr. Steckling's latest revision onto his father's book, Alien Bases on the Moon, now Alien Bases on the Moon 2, contains a combination of over 100 NASA photographs challenging the continued myth behind the dead moon and the inhospitable planet theories and exposes the increasing possibility of the extraterrestrial activity there and i want to give him a big warm welcome to the show glenn thank you for joining me how are you thank you very much it's a pleasure to be with you and it's a pleasure to be able to talk about a subject that i've been immersed in for over half century of my lifetime now, can, um, did you basically like you know like they say like 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 karate guys like they'll teach their kids karate from you know as soon as they get out of the crib like was that kind of you like did your father have you in ufology at a very young age well, it wasn't uh, it wasn't one of these things where you were apprenticed, uh, not like, uh, you know, tennis families and golf families that are looking to market their children for their retirement wealth. But uh, for us, we witnessed these things together. My parents witnessed these craft over Europe uh, during the World War Two when they were growing up as children and then afterwards. And then uh, when they immigrated to Canada and I was born, we came here six months later, shortly thereafter, the United States became citizens. And we had a number of sightings then. And in 1963, we were in downtown Washington and uh, we had a sighting of one of these bell-shaped craft like you see behind me and over downtown Washington at about 1,200 feet above the city. Uh, There were about 30 other witnesses and also um, uh, a reporter for the Washington Daily News. And uh, he reported this into the newspapers. And um, my father said, okay, I've seen enough. Let me go to the Library of Congress. Started alphabetically, A for Adamski. Found the books, Flying Saucers Have Landed, and inside the spaceships and inside were clear, concise, telescopic photos of these uh, type of crafts, kind of crafts that have been witnessed all over the planet for 
thousands of years. And so consequently, uh, we got in contact with George and uh, he was coming three months later to lecture to the Air Force Reserves. So in June of uh, 63, we met him, became good friends. And uh, whenever he was in town, we all were in the same house together in order so that my parents and uh, Mrs. Rotifer could arrange his uh, television and radio appearances along the Eastern seaboard. And so I spent time with George and, uh, and uh, <laughs> saw some amazing things, witnessed some things that you never forget. And so everything compounded from there. So it's not that I was um, a childhood protege, but I was, uh, I was exposed to it. And, uh, and I was given and seen the proof of it, of these ships and of these uh, extraterrestrial contacts that George had. And uh, one time, you know, every one of these films that he had, he had Wisconsin, Boston, Mexico, here in Vista, California, and, uh, and a number of motion picture footage of these UFOs. And um, I remember that uh, my father, when he went to, by invitation to the Pentagon in 66, and also to NASA, got our space flight senator before 22 scientists, Colonel Freeman of the Pentagon said, these are some of the best films and pictures I've ever seen in civilian hands. So no matter what anybody wants to say about George Adamski, they have never been able to do anything than spout off their opinions because proof-wise, his material, probably unlike most others, George's materials have stood the test of time. Every decade's photographic analysis procedure, whether it was in the 50s, which was orthographic projections and biometric radiation checks, which shows that the off the negatives that the crafts that he took pictures off were emitting low-level radiation. Models don't do that. And then uh, his film in 1965, just before he passed, was analyzed by an engineer at uh, Eastman Kodak, and all the specs were given to that. And then um, in the 70s as well, uh, recently a fellow by the name of Rene Olsen in Denmark, he used the latest photographic analysis techniques and wrote a, a phenomenal book. He requested the uh, original negatives from me. And when I went there to Europe to lecture in 2018, I brought those negatives. And um, his book, The George Adamski Story, is, uh, shows these pictures and shows them for the quality they are and for the three-dimensionality. I mean, there is absolutely, there's no question whatsoever. And since we're sharing on Zoom, We'll be able to look at uh, some of these files and um, and see uh, exactly. This? Mm -hmm. was, this your, was this your process for going into your books, Alien Bases on the Moon and Alien Bases on the Moon 2? Like, was that, did you want to just show like raw evidence? Oh, I show more than just raw evidence. I just want to show people, uh, you know, the the incredible archive that we have. I mean, we have George's archives. We have a number of his uh, former co-workers uh, before they passed away, donated their archives. Of course, my parents' archives for the work they did. Uh, this screen that I'm showing and sharing with you here is the uh, 1963 newspaper article uh, where we saw that saucer over Washington, D.C. And you'll notice that the article put 12,000 feet instead of 1,200 feet. And so my father immediately called the editor and said, hey, you know, that's that's not correct. There's a huge amount of difference between those two altitudes. Uh, my father being an amateur pilot, not, I'm a retired professional airline pilot. 
And so uh, the editor said, well, we were contacted by the intelligence community and we were told not to use 1,200 feet because that would signify that we were unable to secure the skies over our nation's capital. And so uh, all these type of uh, reports and sightings that go through the news service have to be pre-cleared. And uh, if anybody thinks they have a free press, well, <laughs> i got news for you. Anything but that. And so, um, so that's the article there. That's amazing. Now, was this, was this the same sighting as the, the famous Washington flyover? And what are your thoughts on that? The Washington flyover of July of 1952 were the same type of crafts. Um, what most people are, are familiar with is a few of the newspaper clippings, which shows these craft in formation flying behind the nation's capital. And, uh, and so the military scrambled uh, F-86s and Lockheed Shooting Stars, their military interceptors, in order to try to chase them down. And it, it was impossible. They, the pilots said any time they got close, this thing took off with speeds of thousands of miles an hour. It was like trying to chase a rabbit. And, uh, and so that was, was very real. And then in 53, the same type of sightings were over London, the United Kingdom, Paris and France, and Italy as well. In fact, there are pictures of these crafts in 53, November of 53, uh, where they performed over the Vatican for a number of days. If you look at uh, Roberto Pinotti's books, uh, he has uh, uh, detailed that quite well. He's a well-known Italian author on this subject, and he is responsible for running the San Marino UFO conference that ran for many years. Yeah, I know the answer to what I'm about to ask you, but I want my audience to hear it because I, I why do you think um, UFO history is so important to preserve? Why, why, if, you had to, if you had to say, why, what would you say? I, I mean, I think I know why, but I'd love to hear my audience to hear. Well, um, in fact, uh, I'm 75% into uh, my brand new book. And uh, the first chapter in section two is the assault on UFO history. And uh, I would say that the attack on UFO history or the revisionism that is being practiced is an attempt to do a multifaceted uh, agenda. One, they want to cloud the subject as much as possible and twist it in, in order to make it more palatable to their point of view. The other day I watched a program where the host said, well, you know, even though the, the, the modern abduction era get, began in 61 out of Colorado, which is true, that's when the whole UFO issue went divergent. Uh, but they trying desperately to extend that leak, link into the past and they bring up the, uh, the Ezekiel story and the Elijah and the Enoch in which it states that he was taken up into the sky. Well, that's just a matter of semantics. You know, uh, friends of mine took me camping. They didn't mean me. They bound and gagged me and made experiments on me. And these, these early historical records were using the references based upon the language that they're familiar with at that time. At the same time, none of these stories talked about anything bad or horrific happening to them. And in fact, if you look at Ezekiel, he describes the occupants being of human appearance. They somehow conveniently forget that little caveat when they show it on the television because they want to push this creature feature monster story nonsense. And so uh, that's part of it. 
And the other part of it is, is that by injecting um, dogma into the accounts that previously happened, then they can twist the story. So for instance, Roswell, of course, happened. Roswell recovered bodies. None of the bodies were living. And so this story that one of them was living and they took them off and into some area 51 or 52, whatever they want to event. Uh, and, uh, you know, he lived for a while and told them everything that he knew. And this is all garbage. First of all, there is no technology that we had then or even now that could possibly hold these individuals. And secondly, their compatriots never would never leave them behind to be to be butchered and experimented on. This is so the caveat changes by using an established story and an established uh, happening, and then by taking it and injecting stuff, then they twist it the direction that they want to go. So that's what's going on in U- UFO history. Um, and so I, uh, I'm with my book, Can Truth Prevail? Uh, I talk about and I list chronologically these events and what we are doing in order to try to mess around with it because I think it's very important for the reader and for people in general who are have interest in this subject not to buy into all the hocus pocus mysticism psychism sensationalism that is promoted within this UFO field marketed in order to make money or to gain notoriety this subject is way too important for that yeah, so in a roundabout way, you're you're kind of saying, and I, this is what I thought, like that that by knowing our UFO history, we can our our true UFO history, we can get a better idea of what's going on today. Like if people are questioning the government and they're not sure what the Navy's showing, knowing our UFO history can put you into a better perspective of why this might be happening, right? Well, absolutely, because what people don't realize is, first of all, our officials know the psychology of the masses very well. They know the average attention spans 20 minutes of that. And, and they also know how to manipulate fear. And fear is not only used in this subject. In fact, fear has become the primary uh, motive of, of manipulating the masses. Fear for your life, fear for your job, fear for your savings, uh, uh, fear for your health. I mean, everything has become a manipulation of fear in order to manipulate and instigate an unbalanced feeling within everybody. The and human so, psyche. Within right? the human psyche, exactly. And it, it, it is used to the nth degree in, uh, in this particular field. And so we have to caution against that. And when you know something, you know that if you do any type of research or study in this subject, there was already a massive push in the 50s with Major Kehoe and Nightcap and Admiral Hidden who was part of that, who was before uh, director of the CIA, and Colonel Freeman, who we saw, and uh, House, House Speaker McCormick, and, John, and James McDonald, the uh, scientist from uh, Arizona. Uh, there was a huge uh, push and, and panels of meetings concerning this. And it was totally suppressed and kiboshed at that time. Now, mind you, the Condon Report looked at over 11,000 sightings in which 700 they had no explanation of. They couldn't come up with an excuse of any kind. NICAP had about uh, 12,000 
uh, of these sightings were recorded in reports in which they had about the same. So for people who say, when you, when you look at the academic community and others who say, well, there's absolutely no proof of intelligence beyond Earth and so on and so forth, there's at least from these two admissions, 1,400 inexplainable under any condition, sightings of what they call extraterrestrial craft. And that was only then. And mind you, this doesn't take into account the Navy's uh, accumulation and collection, the Marines. Every military agency has their own study and their own collection of materials. Originally, it was under the Air Force's domain, and then it splintered off with Captain Ruppelt and the uh, report on unidentified flying objects, and so on and so forth. And so this push was already then. That's why the notion of disclosure is a pure fantasy, absolute fantasy. It's never going to happen, right? It's never going to happen. What they're going to do is they throw out tidbits. Like, for instance, the Navy film you mentioned, uh, I believe the footage was in 2004 and 2008. Yeah, but they didn't come out until 2017, remember? They they wouldn't... that's right. They didn't come out. So what happens is, is they give you a piece of information that's more than 10 years old, and then it's never followed up on. You have yet to get an answer of what that is, other than they're not sure. And so now what they try to do is, is that they're going to try to promote an agenda of hostility. If they feel that they cannot control the information and its source, then they will tell you that this is a threat that comes from space and all the mobilization of our military services and our military industrial industries will then be geared towards that threat. So the economy and the stock market and everything continues politically to run exactly the same way. The only difference is instead of pointing the, pointing the finger at the Russians or the Chinese or North Koreans, we're going to point it out in space and that way we can maintain the status quo. And so there's a different, very definite agenda and, and a very definite domino path that is being followed that Georgia Damsky said it was a foolproof plan. Foolproof. Well, when you deal with fools, how can it not be? <laughs> I like that. Let me ask you this. What, what proof do we have that there are alien bases on the moon? Well, I would say that... Um, we, like I said, in 66, my father, mother, and Mrs. Rotofer uh, went to NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and 22 scientists. And then after that, uh, to Colonel Freeman. By invitation, mind you, they invited us. We didn't uh, do go, for, you know, go there and pound on the door. And so my father developed some uh, sympathetic contacts within NASA. And so... When we got our telescope in 1970, a 12 and a half inch telescope, we started to do intensive uh, lunar observations and we set up a network of other amateur astronomers around the same hemisphere so that when we saw something, we could have somebody a thousand or 2000 miles away look at it as well from a different angle and lighting to make sure that they were seeing the same thing we were seeing, right? And so... Then my father decided to go uh, in the late 70s and use his contacts to start acquiring the NASA Apollo Project and Lunar Orbiter Project catalogs. And they come in in a big catalog and each uh, preliminary photographs about maybe two and a half by two and a half 
and uh, and then you order it by catalog number. You have to pay for it, and uh, and then you start your research. And we ended up with the 15 by 11 Hasselblad high definition uh, photos from uh, the Apollo missions, and it was amazing what we saw in there. Um, to give you an example, and we can go back through some of these pictures here. These are the um, uh, singular frames of the scout craft, the motion picture footage taken at the end of February 1965, uh, which is just a phenomenal piece of footage. You can see That's the insane. you can see the craft, you can see the radiation signature, you can see the portholes, the three dimensionalism of the craft, and uh, another frame from that is uh, let's see here. Uh, it retracted one of the what we call three ball condensers underneath it as it was maneuvering on the film. Wait, what and are the three ball condensers? What do those do? What are the the three ball condensers are, give you a small example here. On the bottom of the ship, and they contain rotating magnets. And by shifting the force or shifting the charge from one way to another, they can use that maneuverability wise. And on the bottom of this, are an, inside here are three uh, uh, rings, uh, gyroscopic rings, which rotate in, in counterclockwise uh, conditions, and also a ring on the very top of the craft as well as underneath the cabin flange. And we'll, along with the magnetic pole that runs through the center of the craft, this becomes an electrostatic, electromagnetic free energy device. That's and this amazing. Is, this is a very old model of of what of their particular spaceships. Uh, they require a carrier craft, or what we call a mothership, in order, like an aircraft carrier, like we have, in order to um, carry them from one planet to the next. Or you can look at this one. This is a picture taken over Mount Palomar by George Damsky in 1959, and you can see the mother craft hover, hovering there. And you can also see down here individual smaller crafts that were released from it. And, um, and that's where the scout ship is uh, carried. They, and my father took this picture over the North Atlantic from the Boeing 707 in 1966 down towards the Atlantic Ocean and where you could see uh, one of these um, carrier craft with two scouts above that. But with, with the force field uh, pretty much... Uh, Neg negated or tuned down, I guess, is probably the best way to, to uh, say that. Uh, you can see, let's see here. Uh, these are some of George's moonshots from 1950. I mean, so cool. I mean, any, <laughs> anybody who claims this is, is faked or otherwise, this was, and to show you in conjunction, this was taken by the Dobbinshire brothers uh, and, uh, in England, of this craft coming up above the bog. <laughs> Why do you it, think it looks translucent? Is that because it's, because it's shifting dimensions? No, no. There's no such thing as dimensional shifting. That's a fantasy. That's science fiction. What's happening is, is this, is this craft powers up as like a rheostat. As you turn the power up, the field starts to envelop the craft into the point where it is no longer showing like a shape like that but showing itself to be uh, more round and translucent. So let's see here. <laughs> Are you a pilot one? Yes, Are you a pilot? I'm, I'm a retired pilot, yes. Oh, that's awesome. My cousin was a pilot as well. 
Yeah, I flew airplanes for 45 years. Here's the cover of the book that I mentioned to you by Renee Olson, The George Adamski Story, which went through these negatives and these films frame by frame, piece by piece. And, uh, and, this, and after all these years, when this book came out, boy, the, the critics and the skeptics, they swallowed real hard because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't negate it. Let me ask you this, Glenn. Uh, th- these human ETs, like, where were they from? Or where did George say they were from? I, I heard you say they were from like this solar system. Were they Venusians yeah. like Val Thor? Well, Val Thor was a fraud. Uh, in, ni- in 1965, and that's in the book as well, at the end of the year, uh, there's a knock on our door, and Dad and I go and stand at the door, and he opens it, and there stands Val Thor. And my father just starts laughing. And then all of a sudden, Val Thor starts laughing. And my father says to him, I know who you are. I also know that you're no extraterrestrial. You work for the Pentagon as a misinformation agent. And you go out into this field in order to confuse and scramble this, this as much as possible. And Val Thor said, yeah, that's true. And so my father says, well, you're not going to get any traction here. So you really got nothing to do. And Val said, okay, we'll see you. And off he went. And that was the end of the contact we had. But, um, but his claims were, were not correct. And they were false. Uh, let me give you that. That's huge news. Like that's it's huge news. Like, well, well, it, not really. We've been talking about it for several, from a number of decades, and um, and so you asked about the moon. Well, here's the book, and in there we've got over a hundred NASA photos and area blowups, right? And that was first released in 1981, and uh, because of it, Lord Clancarty invited my father to address the select uh, members of uh, the House of Lords. And he gave the book to Prince Philip as well, because Prince Philip and Prince uh, King Charles now uh, both have a very large interest in this subject. Uh, Prince Philip's uh, uncle, I believe it was uncle, is Lord Manbatten. Manbatten used to be the air lord and sea lord, rather, to all the armed forces in the United Kingdom, and also the last viceroy of India. He had one of these bell-shaped saucers land on his property in 1954 in Ireland. So he was very well versed in this. And in fact, it was Lord Mountbatten, Sir Desmond Leslie, and uh, Lord Dowden, who was uh, the air marshal, who openly admitted uh, knowing about UFOs, who were Georges Damsky's sponsors for his uh, lectures in the United Kingdom in 1959. Here's an Apollo 12 shot of this large elliptical lenticular object hanging above the Apollo astronaut. I mean, we literally had to go through thousands of pictures in order to get these kind of shots and show them to the public. And uh, let's see here. We'll give you another example. Look here from uh, the Royal Astronomical Society. They are talking about having watched various light patterns and shapes moving around the moon, 50-mile wide opaque object, great white domes, bridge-like structures, uh, Russian scientists seeing the same thing. And, um, and so in certain circles, this is not uh, unusual information. It's just um, uh, that it, uh, you know, it often doesn't circulate. Here's Mount Wilson Observatory Gassendi Crater in the 1930s. Now look at all these straight lines. Now, 
Mind you, they're not indentations. These are tubular and they're straight and linear and they go through the crater walls. Look at that. If that isn't an indication that there's activity and construction activity going on in the moon, I don't know what is. Yeah, what would that be there for? That's insane. That's right. Greater Cassandra Crater. All right. And so, I mean, this is, uh, uh, here's another NASA photo of something over the moon oh or, or, two, or, or two objects. This is uh, what an Apollo 12 shot. You know, I, I watched an interview with, uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, they knew they were going to encounter UFOs on the moon, right? All these missions, they knew. They Correct. Knew, they, knew, they knew, right? There is a book called Our Ancestors Came From Outer Space, and it was written by Marie Chatelaine, who was a chief engineer for Ryan uh, Aerospace, and then later became the uh, patent holder for 11 inventions for the Apollo telecommunication system. And in his book, he makes a statement, all space voyages starting from mercury on were accompanied by ufos and all the astronauts saw them and reported them back to mission control only some of them went public but a number of them did uh scott carpenter gordon cooper uh ed white oh my god uh, uh the list is is in a, a brian o'leary uh, the list is just incredible. I also put all that information in the book. This is sort of going to be my last hurrah as far as uh, writing is concerned, perhaps, where I want to put down a definitive history and word of what has transpired over the last half century so that people can pick it up if they wish and they can get a different viewpoint. Uh, some may find that very refreshing. Others will find it very disturbing. Uh, but uh, that's the nature of the beast. Can, can I ask you this? Do you think anybody has uh, has has taken over the reins of uh, contactee as far as like uh, so beyond what Adamski's done? Because there's a lot of contactees out there. Like, um, what, what would you say? Or do you think he was? I mean, like, I will say that there was nobody like George Adamski. They supported him 100. percent In fact, I can tell you without hesitation that wherever he went he always had their friendly company either traveling with him or meeting him on locations where he went in order to give him the support that he needed he was literally their representative on this planet and he went as their emissaries to the government he took eisenhower out into the california desert to an air base and where uh, the ship came down prearranged and had a face-to-face in 62, he took Kennedy out there, out of uh, Desert Hot Springs. He and the Attorney General met him, and they went out to another air base for the same thing. George carried a White House access card. He showed it to all of us, uh, and uh, he would be summoned sometimes to the White House in order to give briefings on the subject. And um, and so George went. George also went. Yeah, George also went. In 1963, two weeks before Pope John XXIII died and delivered a sealed message from the space people to the Vatican, in which George received the Golden Papal Medal of Honor, and which I have in my possession as well. So, no, there's nobody in this field. A lot of people make claims. None to little have any evidence to stand on. And I find that their stories vacillate depending on which way the wind blows 
in order to maintain uh, uh, being likable in this field. And th that's not how this works. No, you either stand for the truth or you don't. No, what do you think about what happened with the abduction phenomena? Like that was really going on, it seemed like. And, uh, you know, with the research of people like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and stuff like that, like it seems like a lot of people came out in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Well, I know Bud and David were in the 90s, but you know what I'm saying? Like before that, like what are your thoughts on what happened with that? And like who is in control of the Greys or were they in control of themselves? Well, first of all, when these ships came, they came in great numbers and uh, accessibility was given to our leaders. Because let's face it, that is the logical first step of any contact to go up amongst the people's leaders and orders so that they can then filter it down to their populations and their citizens. And they found out, the space people found out that uh, our leaders were not going to do that. Uh, in 52, Hoyt Vandenberg, the uh, chief of uh, army general, air force general, rather, um, uh, he put the kibosh on the whole thing and slammed it down into ultra secret. And, um, and so, and that program continued on. And so these ships started to land among the general population and began, as I mentioned to you, flying in formation over countries, capital buildings, and landing in amongst the people. Uh, and in many uh, uh, circumstances, these were, these were reported as well. And so what happened is, is our officials found out that they couldn't control this. So they had to find a way to discourage the population psychologically in order to keep them from engaging in any type of um, beneficial contact. So in 61, they initiated a program in which the, the big hype became the, the initial abduction uh, situation. And then it slowly grew from that until, if you look at the polls in the late 50s, people were asked, if one of these craft land, would you be willing to interact? And the majority said yes. By the time we hit the late 70s, the exact opposite happened. People are scared out of their minds and they're going to run for their lives or get their guns or pitchforks or whatever and go into the aggressive attack mode. So from the standpoint of psychological discouragement, it was, a once again, a foolproof plan. Now, these craft carry robotics and androids. Each craft carries, the older craft carries two robots and the newer craft have moved to the androids which look more human-like, but only four fingers. The robotics look like you, what you would call the report of the, of the greys. However, they have not gone and snatched anybody. I spend a whole chapter uh, in the book uh, about abductions. And the, what we have discovered, or what we have revealed, it's already out there, is that there's a huge plethora of people who suffer from mental illness, sleep deprivation, all kinds of different things, to almost to the tune of 100 million people in this country alone. Sleep deprivation gives people the sensation that they are lev levitating out of bed and have a, a electrolysis running through their system. And that's some of what the abduction people are talking about, too. So what I think, oh, better than what I think, what I believe is the majority of this has to do with our own 
circumstances upon which we project and blame the easy scapegoat. And the easy scapegoat is, of course, extraterrestrials because they're not there to defend themselves. Now, if you look at a technology that is used to successfully travel space, the distances of space, that's several thousand years, linear years ahead of us. That because we as civilizations on this planet usually go three, four hundred years, collapse, start the whole process over again. So we go up and down in the technological field and, and sociological development. But in this case, they have several thousand years ahead of us in which they have been able to perfect space travel. They have a technology where they can sit in orbit and they can monitor your thoughts, our conversation, all the way down to your subatomic level. They don't need to come down here and steal you and probe you. They don't need your cattle either. What's going on with that? What do you think is going on with the cattle mutilations? Well, in 67, my father was in Baltimore on a show in which the subject came up. And my father said, absolutely not. That's got nothing to do with extraterrestrials. And he was right. And so the producer says, hey, I know one of the ranchers out there. Let's give him a call. So they call him up on the phone. And the rancher says, I, I don't have any ETs here. He says, I got a bunch of military people in lab coats running around. I got a biological lab that's not far from here. I've got a, I've got, um, uh, a military that's experimenting with lasers and masers and, and all this equipment. Because remember, what you see today is technology that was developed at least 10 years ago. Right. And so, yeah. and so consequently, there was a whole lot of, st of stuff going on. In fact, as I say in my new book, the Atomic Energy Commission uncovered in Utah uh, underground poisoning of water from the nuclear explosions and the release of radiation and the mutation of bacteria that had affected livestock, both cattle and others. And the government, the Atomic Energy Commission was trying very hard to buy up these carcasses so that they, they wouldn't get caught, uh, for the lack of a better word, with their pants down. And, um, and so all these uh, eaten away uh, carcasses came from radiation poisoning, radiation exposure, and the consequences of these type of experiments. And so once again, we're all too quick to put the blame somewhere else. And there's all too many people who are willing to, to, uh, to exploit it in order to get uh, further in their careers. And so we don't look for some rational ideas and some rational thought. We have a society that has become more and more under the psychosis of victimization. And victimization means that I, I want to be a victim and because I either want the attention or the sympathy or whatever else that comes with it. And so claims are made because once again, they know it's very shaky ground in order to have to prove it. They don't have any pictures. They don't have nothing. All they can tell you is about, well, I have this memory. Under hypnosis, any memory can be planted. And in fact, we were talking about Mr. Hopkins and, of course, Mr. Mack, Professor Mack. Uh, they were questioned when they said, well, you can, by the nature of your questioning or the wording of the questioning under hypnosis, you can suggest to the patient what you want them to say in order to support any idea or agenda that you have. And I, I remember correctly, the, the psychologist in there, I believe she was from Harvard, 
made the interview and they said, well, yeah, we know that, but we're more careful than that. Well, I, I, I beg to differ. That's, that's so I, I've never heard that outlook on the on the abduction phenomenon before. That's amazing. Let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on what kind of craft we have um, that our government has? I mean, do you believe we have the TR3B and what else do you think we're, 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 we have like currently? We have multi-levels of uh, uh, air and space development. So, for instance, you have the aviation industry uh, that is uh, supported by the military industry, whether it's uh, Lockheed, uh, well, it used to be McDonnell Douglas, now it's Boeing and, uh, and others of these companies. And they're working with the general field of what we consider to be aerodynamics. And under those situations, of course, you, the U-2, the SR-71, the Aurora, uh, there are a number of these devices that go faster and faster. I believe the fastest one now is up to about Mark 8 or something like that. That is under the realm of what we would call standard uh, aer aerodynamic development. But these crafts don't work under aerodynamics. These craft produce their own spherical atmosphere and gravity within it. There is always one gravity of pull from the floor, no matter in what position this craft is let in. So for the occupants inside, there are no G-forces and there is no discomfort from it being like this or like this. That's why you can see some UFO pictures where they're very clear like this or like this in Brazil or looking straight up through the bottom and, and other examples. And so the secondary side of that is the uh, experimental technology that we have garnered from these some of these crashed and and uh, fragmented uh, craft whether it's aztec the cortez uh, uh white sands roswell things like that i mean there are a number of uh, circumstances where these crafts have had mechanical problems and crashed some of them intact like in white sands others in pieces due to uh, the circumstances like Roswell was inside a thunderstorm where there was a breakage in the system in which uh, electrocution uh, went through the entire craft and blew out the portholes, which caused de uh, explosive decompression on the body. So the bodies were electrocuted and explosive decompression, which causes swelling and disfiguring of, the, of, the, uh, of each occupant as well. And so... Uh, we have recovered some technology from that, and we have experimented with that. And uh, from my information, we have started to develop these crafts as early as 1960. And we have uh, used both a rocket syst delivery system and these, this type of uh, uh, extraterrestrial technology to go to the moon and set up our own uh, installations there. So on the moon, we have not only... Uh, installations from extraterrestrials, but we also have our own. And uh, as you may well recall, that's what uh, astronaut Armstrong was uh, so adamant about when he went there and he saw, he went on a frequency where he said, my God, look at these crafts and they're here and, and all this other stuff. And they made him change channels and they totally suppressed that. And that changed him greatly. As far as the individual, his outlook, he found out that Everybody was lying like crazy. And so, um, and so we have both. And, um, and so 
When it comes to sightings these days, triangular ships are ours, not theirs. These, to be able to tra uh, successfully travel space, you have to have a craft that is um, uh, cigar-shaped or elliptical. This is a picture my father took of one of these elliptical replacements of this scout ship that was on a film. And this is allowing them to travel uh, through space without the mother craft. But this is a standardized shape because the energy has to flow over the craft in an unbroken pattern. There are no appendages, no landing gear, nothing sticking out of this craft because when you start accelerating to light speed and beyond, if you don't have a force field around that it extends to a larger and larger value, as you go through space, you hit microscopic dust and meteorites and everything else, tear you to pieces. And so... Um, Those so, are amazing pictures. That's an amazing picture. <laughs> it's part of a film, no less. But the idea here is that, um, is that triangular is us. Anything with pods hanging down on it, like legs, is us. Anything with appendages hanging out of it and fins and wings and that kind of stuff, that's all us. Um, there's um, there's a, a great deal about, oh, I would say about 50 to 60% of what is reported nowadays is our equipment, whether it happens to be drones, uh, research and development craft, uh, uh, raw control devices, so on and so forth. And so another another good well, another good 10% or 15% is just straight out mis in misidentification. People who see lenticular clouds over a mountain, these are called lenticular clouds. And they, they, are, they are constructed by the movement of the air over the west and east facing side of the mountain that is rising. And it, and it indicates extreme turbulence. That's why we as pilots stay away from them as far as possible. The kind of turbulence that literally can tear an airplane apart. And so that's another misidentification. And so there's, there is some of that too. Rather weather phenomena, ball lightning. I've seen that over the Brazilian jungle. And, uh, and uh, different uh, atmospheric uh, conditions. So when it all comes down to it, said and done, maybe... Maybe ten to twelve percent is the real thing. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you how many sightings did you have when you were a pilot throughout your time as a career as a pilot? Oh, oh, I would say probably half dozen. Wow. Uh, one That's one so of them hard. was uh, one over the North Atlantic. We were traveling on the uh, north of the uh, track system, what we call the North Atlantic track system that runs from Canada. Uh, over to Ireland, and uh, that's a non-radar environment. And we were north of that due to because they fluctuate every twelve hours. They uh, and and are are published based upon winds and temperatures and things like that. So we were north of that, uh, passing over Goose Bay, and over the distance, I we were looking at the moon at night, and from behind the moon came a large luminescent object. And it swung there and in front of the moon, held still, and then shot up into space. And I said to the other two crew members, I said, hey, what was that? And they looked at it and looked at me, and they didn't say anything. So I've had some sightings like that. I've had a lot more as a civilian uh, because, I, you know, when you go out and you look, 
it's much different than when you're an acting crew member and you're responsible for the monitoring of the computers and the weather conditions and the air traffic control and the other aircraft to ship to ship that you're talking to as well. But you'll notice that just recently, uh, the there was a there's a report released where they say that um, uh, pilots from several airlines reported UFOs uh, between the Sea of Japan and Hawaii and the west coast of the United States, and um, and one of the employers absolutely forbade the pilot of talking, while a half a dozen of the other ones were willing to go on open record in order to. Uh, to open this up a little bit. So the same constraints, the same prejudices and biases and fears that operated for the last 50 years seem to be still in place. If you look at Major Kehoe's books, he describes airliners from Eastern United and all kinds of other uh, airlines that have reported these uh, these craft and, uh, and have done so congruently. Others have seen them as well. So this is this is no secret. I mean, it's one more, one more log on the fire, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to go over before we finish up for today? And or do you want to talk about, about your new book? Uh, well, I think I, I mentioned it here quite a bit, and um, and uh, here's a uh, one of the frames from my father's film taken over Germany while we were traveling on the train of a fleet of UFOs. Uh, and uh, this was also shown to the Pentagon as well. And everybody on the train was standing there watching it and uh, watching them go and, and traveling along and flying in formation. Uh, let's see what else uh, we got here. Make it real quick. Um, some of the documentation from the uh, from the Pentagon and NASA and and other NICAP and uh, my father's first book, Why Are They Here? Spaceships for Other Worlds, was released in 1969 by Vantage Press. So he was published. And uh, here's uh, when he was on the Art Link Letter Show, uh, when he came back to the house. But uh, it shows that he was there on on uh, on the national television. and um, And so we did this all as volunteer work. Uh, the famous uh, Alan Hynek, the critic, when he finally came clean, he's using one of George's Adamski's books, uh, pictures taken from through the telescope. That's amazing. Yeah. And so once again, uh, a vindication for the man who worked so hard. Uh, here's uh, the first telescope we had, uh, the 12 <laughs> and a half inch. And uh, that's me there with it. And then the second one we had, the 18 and a half inch uh, uh, odyssey there as well so we had the opportunity to look at the moon and study it and and give us the the desire to continue research my father's a correspondence with prime minister gary of grenada led to the releasing of these uh, stamps using the adamski uh, um, footprint for that and so we were rather happy that uh, that he was an open advocate of that and um, and wanted to help promote that. Uh, like we mentioned before, orthographic projection was done by Leonard Cramp, Space Gravity and the Flying Saucer, finding the dimensions and the size, this craft being about 33 feet in diameter. That's with the Coniston photo matching it as well. And uh, 
Let's see, anything else in here that uh, might interest people? Now that's in my much younger days. <laughs> oh, that's Fly, a cool photo. Flying a Boeing. And, uh, you know, like the old saying goes, if it ain't Boeing, we ain't going. And um, I also was invited to go to Haleakalau, the Air Force Observatory up there. Uh, by one of their photographic staff, and that was in the 90s, in which we ta- they talked about identified flying job objects, IFOs and UFOs that they had taken a number of pictures of. And so um, uh, they were aware of that as well. And let's see what else real quick. Oh, here are some of the pictures from Renee's book of... of of taking it and, and uh, enlarging and enhancing it. You can see the, the mothership and the, and the scouts around it above the car. Uh, and, um, and this one enlarged of the scout as it was behind the, uh, landed behind the knoll. And, um, wow. and uh, let's see what else. Here's the, here's the article in the Phoenix Gazette about the, uh, about the landing and the, and the entire uh, story. So, I mean, it was in it was in the newspapers. It was not like it was being um, uh, held away. The enlargement from one of the photographs shows this individual walking down the canyon. As you can see, it's much enlarged because in the old days they had a camera and has a glass plate, and there were no changeable lenses. You just you had to change the f-stop and aperture in order to take pictures. And uh, this is the enlargement of the individual as it got closer in the frame. And then here's the painting, uh, George's description of how this individual looks like. This painting stands right over here in my office. And um, let's see, that uh, should pretty much give everybody a pretty quick view of... uh, of uh, this, uh, of this uh, subject we're talking about. Here's in Milan, Italy. There's P- uh, Roberto Pernote I mentioned earlier, the Italian author. And so we did a little symposium there together. So it's been an active lifetime in this field. Very active. Uh, here's the cover of the book, in fact. The new book. Oh, that looks cool. I like that. Yep, yep, so... So anyway, um, I hope I answered some of your questions and, and, and uh, you know, I'm more than happy to do this again if you wish to. And if you come up with more uh, questions or more interest, I'm always available. I'm doing another show on November 11th and um, that'll make the fifth one I've done in the last oh, two and a half months. Oh, wow. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, thirst for this topic it seems like people are really involved like people want to know what's going on right it seems like uh it's hard to explain like it just seems like everybody wants to it's it wants to know what's what's going on with the ufos right now right well i think that um i think that part of it is is having to do with a, a desire to seek something that is a little bit of more rationale and more purpose than just you know having the ever loving daylights scared out of people yeah you know and 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 i think that that's that's a key to some of that and uh 
and I, I'm hoping that that people will take the uh, opportunity to to take a look at something more than what is just being thrown out there, yeah. right? And so, I think that that um, that is very important. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and um, I'm looking here for, let's see if I can get it based upon what's up with this program here. Uh, let's see if I can. Oh, okay. Uh, the, interestingly, in the, um, in the UK, and it wasn't in this country, in the UK was released a, a um, documentary which showed three formerly unpublished um, photos from Mount Palomar in 1949 that uh, showed these saucers flying in formation. These were taken by the astronomers, no less. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to see if, if I've, where I threw them and, um, and see if I can give you a quick viewing of them. Um, yeah, I don't think that they're here, but, but, um, amazing stuff. I mean, and it goes, shows to, and this was reported in, in the project blue book. And, and so, and so was George's, um, uh, sightings that were there as well. And so consequently, um, you know, it, it, it collaborates information that, uh, that has been talked about for a long time. Let me give you a little example of this here. Uh, when George had a space contact, the contact asked him for the glass plate that was in his pocket. It was an unexposed one. And he gave it to him. Three weeks later, the saucer flew over the property at about 30 feet and dropped a package. Inside that package was the glass plate with these symbols on the top here engraved upon it. The interesting thing is, is that, <laughs> is that these symbols below were discovered in the Brazilian jungle by a um, French anthropologist 10 years later, right? And so, and when you compare the two, look how close uh, that about 80% of the symbols are. And this is one of the, uh, puzzles for the uh, for the building of a free energy device, and these symbols down here, Professor Homey, he believed that dating them around thirty thousand years ago. Oh my God! So the ancient aliens theory is real, right? Oh yeah, they were here. They've been here for thousands of years. Absolutely. Do you think they seeded us then? Do you believe with the stories of like that they can be the Anunnaki or something? Well, the Anunnaki is a mistranslation. If you, uh, if you study that, uh, I recently read an article, and I can't recall all of it in my head all at once. Uh, the Anunnaki is a, a mistranslation of what that means. And, um, and consequently, that, uh, you know, whether, whether they were more or less, any more or less subject to, to what is all going on, well, that's at, um, I'm sure that they were some contacts with the Sumerians. There were some contacts, I know, with the 
Tibetans, the Polynesians, uh, the Aztecs talked about Quetzalcoatl, the Mayans as well, uh, and and uh, the Incas, uh, the Egyptians, the Greeks. Alexander the Great uh, saw one of these lights in the ocean near India, and so uh, consequently, they are um, they have been with us for thousands of years, and they have never done anything nasty to us. Or, or you know, uh, in comparison to what we are uh, we are claiming today, and so uh, I think uh, I can't find those pictures right now, but I think that um, there is clear evidence that they have been with us. The Bible has about four hundred accounts: the flying scroll, the flying shield, the wheel within the wheel. Uh, you know, it, it, there's there's a lot of references there under those circumstances, as well. Yeah. So. Well, this has been amazing. I, I, yeah, I'd love to have you back on the show. I love talking about this stuff, and uh, and thank you, thank you for taking your time to do this. And I'll I'll send you a link when they when I post it. But where can the people find your um your website and all all them all your books and all that stuff? If you'd like. Uh, they they can find me on Amazon on eBay. On abe.com, abe.com, uh, they can go to the website at Damsky Foundation, one word.com. We have a materials page. It's probably easier for people to go through the through the co- other companies, but uh, if they order from me, I don't uh, process credit cards. We go through PayPal. Here are the pe- pictures I mentioned to you from Mount Palomar. Here's the observatory. Look at them flying here in formation. This is October of 1949 over a period of nine days. Wow. There's one picture. Here's another picture. Look at them. You can see the scout with the dome formation on it. That's amazing. Isn't that something? I, I thought it was absolutely spectacular. A- another notch in, in the George's belt. And here's then the final one here, which shows uh, the elliptical device much more clearly. So I th- I think that your uh, listeners and uh, and uh, the people who who will look at this have uh, gotten themselves a good look at just a fraction of uh, what we have and what we represent and um, and we don't make a penny off of it. I travel around the world, or I used to, until I had my recent illness, uh, free of charge, no honorariums, and no paying for. Any of the things I, I took it upon myself as what my father did and uh, my mother as well. And uh, we respect this field and those who are involved with it, uh, our space friends, way too much to possibly dishonor them with any type of uh, shenanigans. Yeah, well, that's really well said. And uh, thank you again for doing this. This was amazing. And uh, yeah, I'll send you a link when I upload it. You bet. Sounds good. I'll be looking forward to seeing it, and then I will pass it around on our uh, on our media uh, network as well. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Take care, Rob. Thank you.